Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. A little bit of a different one today. For one, it's on a Saturday, uh, but two, and, and most importantly, I'm doing this because Bob McNair, the owner of the Texans, passed away last night. And without getting uh, in-depth into everything that's happened with Bob McNair and the Houston Texans over the last couple of years, I, I would just want to say that uh, I'm very grateful to him and his part that he um, has in my life right now, you know, to this day, because I would have been playing football somewhere between 2002 and 2006 if Bob McNair had ever had never created the Texans, but I wouldn't have the life I have right now, and I'm pretty happy with it, and and really happy with everything that came with playing for Bob McNair's team um, and seeing something from the very start of it to where it is now and to watch the way the business was operated um, and to see a lot of the really good things that Bob McNair did. I'm very grateful to him and also his, his wife, Janice, who's just an awesome lady. Um, and I feel very much for her right now and the rest of his family. So uh, the city of Houston likely wouldn't have a football team if it weren't for Bob McNair. Uh, as large as it is, it's the fourth largest city in the country. Um, when the Oilers left, there was only one person that really led the charge to bring a team back here to Houston, and uh, it was Bob McNair. So uh, I, I very much thank him for that. The first memory I ever had of Bob McNair here in Houston in a non-football setting was when I was having dinner at Maggiano's Italian Grill with my wife, and I think it was Chris Brown and his wife, Amy, and in walked a guy that looked a lot like the owner of the Texans, Bob McNair. I'd met him like once or twice at that point. Um, but he walked in, and then I realized soon enough that it, uh, that it was Bob McNair and his wife Janice. So I went over to say hi to him. And I, I can just remember within 30 seconds he was telling me about the place I had to try near my house. It was a barbecue joint that had dollar beer nights on a given night of the week. And that, that's where I had to go. And, and that's where I started to learn about this guy who wasn't your typical – billionaire um you know wasn't born into a wealthy family and was very much a self-made man and and didn't have his extreme success until he was middle-aged and i think because of that retained a lot of just the the down homeness of of a normal guy um and it's it's been Unfortunate, but at the same time, I think it's been good for America in some ways that these last two years he's been at the center of a lot of turmoil um, because I think that this is part of the clashing of older generations and younger ones and changing expectations and uh, changing ways that people view the world. And it's not pretty. It's pretty ugly at times, but I think it's ultimately going to be a good transformation and it's going to be good for America. And he was somebody that uh, deeply cared whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him about his political beliefs or anything else. Um, this was a guy who was deeply committed to serving his community and his country. And that was why he brought the Texans to Houston. Um, he, he felt like it was his civic duty. And he mentioned that the first time we had a team meeting in Houston, I can remember we were sitting down in the bowels of the Astrodome in uh, this musty old room, which, which I'm guessing was just, just chock full of mold at that point. And this was 20, this was 20 years ago. The Astrodome was in bad shape. Uh, now it's supposedly a little bit better, but um, you know, he told us the story of exactly why he brought the team there. Uh, and, and one thing, you know, I haven't had a lot of experience playing in a lot of different teams. I've only played for two franchises. Uh, I, I felt like they 
ran they ran that business in a way that was so impressive and tried to be top notch all the time. Um, and he still does it that way. Um, but especially in the way the in the way the organization viewed character risks and guys that had criminal backgrounds and whatnot. Look, the the Texans are among the lowest in arrests for players like every single year. And a lot of times fans get upset about that because they feel like, all right, look, can you push the envelope a little bit? Can we be a little bit more competitive? Um, I, not, not Bob McNair, you know, that just wasn't what he was going to do because he felt like it was his responsibility to put out players that the community could be proud of. Um, and again, all the rest of it, we'll be able to delve into it during talk radio. But right now uh, I just, I appreciate the man for, everything he did, um, the organization that he created, the way the Texans operate now, and uh, everything else, and both from what it means to me and uh, a bunch of my former teammates personally, and also just uh, feel awful for Janice McNair. She uh, she's she was married to a good one, and uh, he was married to a great one. So rest in peace, Bob McNair. Let's get on with the rest of the week. Oh, man, it was a fun Thanksgiving, wasn't it? Three good games. Uh, Not all great games, but three pretty good games and a whole lot of excitement. Matt Nagy, whose team played three games over the course of nine days, including a ridiculous stretch where they played on Sunday night and then had to play away on the early game on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, had this to say about that particular stretch. We ended up uh, challenging our guys um, a couple weeks ago, you know, I think it was around November 7th, knowing that we were going to have a three-game stretch here that was not three games in, in 12 days. And so um, we looked at the big picture, uh, three division games, um, and then we, we stepped back and we, we honed on into to playing each game one at a time uh, in a short period of time. And our guys, they, they, they took that as a challenge, and uh, they finished it off today. Um, and now they get a little bit of a, a breather with a little mini buy, which is nice. And they're going to enjoy that time, be smart. Um, but that was uh, just so much credit to, to those guys. Uh, okay, so three games in 12 days. Three games in nine days. That doesn't make any sense at all. Thank you, Coach Nagy. It's pronounced Nagy, by the way. At least I've been told. Um, not Nagy, even though it's spelled Nagy. Really cool story with Matt Nagy, if you ever check it out. He uh, you know, spent some time out of football. I'm intrigued by these guys who spend some time out of football and then come back into football because I think a lot of times they just have flat out better perspective on things and maybe understand a little bit more the way the world operates, that uh, football coach isn't God in every walk of life. Uh, but regardless, look, he has a quarterback in Chase Daniel that's been in that system for a little while because he was with him in Kansas City and flat out knew how to operate it. So he didn't get the sense that the Bears were all that limited. Um, you know, he's not the athlete that Trubisky is, uh, but he is a smarter veteran guy. I, I'll say this, though. Man, the Bears' defense is so for real. Um, and I'm so proud of Vic Fangio, the defensive coordinator. I played for Vic Fangio. And the thing about him that I loved the most was that he loves he loves to empower players to make decisions on the field if he thinks they're smart players. And, and he gave me so many tools in terms of reading formations, um, when I could play more aggressively based on the coverage that was playing behind me. I didn't Look, I'll be honest with you. I was in my sixth year in the NFL when I came to Houston. I knew so little about coverages. It was embarrassing. 
Vic Fangio taught me a whole lot about coverages. I say embarrassing. I mean, like, it, I'm not most linemen in the NFL, offense, defensive linemen at least, don't understand nearly as much about the total defense as you might expect because you're focused on your own little world, not the stuff behind you. But he he changes guys' responsibilities, assignments, alignments, everything based on the offense, based on the down and distance, based on tendencies, all those things. And the more you can absorb as a player – the smarter it makes you on the field. And, and he just has a system for getting it done. And I'm a nose tackle. So you can imagine what it's like for the genuine skill positions, including Eddie Jackson, who Eddie Jackson, he's a fourth round pick who has his fifth defensive touchdown in the past two seasons. He picked off Stafford, took it to the house. I think that, I think his was the celebration, right? Where he was singing like he was on Motown. Um, the, the, the best tribute to Motown was done by the visiting scene that day. Cause everybody else was dancing behind him. Um, and then the one kid got, the one kid got down on the front of the camera and made him look like the crowd. One of the best group celebrations we've seen in this incredible season of group celebrations where we've had, uh, finally, the restrictions are off and everybody can express their creativity and you wonder why the hell the NFL cared so much like they did. But Fangio, I think when you watch guys like Eddie Jackson make that play where he just sniffed out his guy, anticipated the route, stepped in front of it and was on his way into the end zone, you feel and you see how this Bears defense that causes so many turnovers, it's not a fluke. You know, they rush the passer. Khalil Mack's a holy terror. And, they, and they're opportunistic. They pounce on routes. They're well-schooled. Uh, they know what to anticipate. And it's really, uh, it's really a sight to behold. And I think the offense is way better than a lot of people even realize at this point. Um, they were heading into this week. They were the sixth scoring offense. Now, that's a little deceptive because the way they do the scoring offense and defense is kind of crude. They don't include defensive scores. They don't separate defensive scores from the off the the scoring offense. It's it's kind of weird and special teams too. So it's a little bit misleading, but they've been a very they've been a very opportunistic team overall and uh, I think when Trubisky comes back, it's going to be that much more impressive. So the Chicago Bears are certainly for real. I'm going to tell you it's on, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to look at Matt Patricia on the sideline and um, after after he tore into that reporter for not having good posture, it's hard for me to watch this guy lose to a team that is playing their backup quarterback and has played three games in the last 12 days, had an extremely short rest and turned around from Sunday to Thursday, and that's the product you guys put out there. Uh, pathetic. Uh, I don't know what to say about it other than that, look, it's the first year. He'll, I'm, cer- I'm certain he'll get it around. The halftime the halftime guy. He's the guy that's saying, I took a bill, a pill in Ibiza. I had no idea that was him. If I remember that video correctly, that was kind of like a smooth-faced, like, uh, wannabe Euro trash type, like an American living, some expat that probably spent a whole lot of time sucking up to his Euro buddies by talking about how evil and awful the United States is. You know the type. You know what I'm talking about. Well, he's out there looking like some dude from Fraggle Rock with a with a big bushy beard and crazy hair and everything. He looked like kind of a, a physically put-together Zach Fe- Galifianakis. Uh, is that how you pronounce his name? Zach Galifianakis? Yeah, Zach Galifianakis. Uh, I, I was impressed with that song, and I said so on Twitter. 
to which I received great scorn. A bunch of guys my age acting like they're too cool to try to listen to some guy singing soprano up in front of a, a bunch of people that are paid to dance down there on the sideline. But uh, he was no Aretha Franklin. Like I said, Eddie Jackson was the Aretha Franklin in the tribute to Motown that day. And then we had the Cowboys defeat the Redskins 31-23. to This was my opportunity to feel like a grumpy old man when Dak Prescott scored a touchdown in the second half and he was hoisted into the uh, Salvation Army bucket. Ah, look, look. I don't, I don't want to be this guy. I, I hate being this guy. I think you should be allowed to celebrate with props, but you're not allowed to celebrate with props. And Dak Prescott, who's looked like a whole different guy since the Cowboys traded for Amari Cooper, uh, ends up costing his team 15 yards on the ensuing drive and kickoff, at which point the Redskins returned the ball past the 50-yard line and ended up scoring on that drive. I, I have no choice but to say I agree with Jason Garrett. He didn't like it either. Here is uh, Dak Prescott himself on the scenario. In the Salvation Army kettle? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't have any plans to do that. Uh, I guess Zeke did. Uh, he showed his strength. I was, I was actually trying not to get in there, but um, once, once he had me in the air, I said, I got to own it now. Uh, and I just figured I'd jump in there before, before I got hurt. You know what? Let me take a look at this one more time. I, in my mind, it had been more of a pre-planned dual effort. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, is old Zeke Elliott, whether it's uh, lifting somebody's blouse up at a parade or putting his quarterback in a pot, and he doesn't ask questions. He just does it. I, I wonder, too, if the NFL ends up fining him. Maybe they've already said they weren't going to fine him for this. If they do fine him for this, I feel like Ezekiel Elliott's got to step up. I know it all goes to charity, but th- th- this is the thing about these fines going to charity. That's great, but for the most part, guys have a pretty good idea in mind of how much they want to contribute to charity. The extra twenty-five grand, especially when you're on your rookie contract, is still a little bit of a kick in the gut. It's it's consolation that it goes to someplace nice, but it doesn't necessarily fit in with whatever your financial plan was for the year. You know, maybe somebody's already given ten percent to their church and/or charity, and then you throw this on top of it. Um, and Dak Prescott, as has been well documented, is still on his rookie contract. The Cowboys have to make a decision now about Dak Prescott, um, and exactly, you know. Sometime over the next couple of years, are they going to pay him? I was as critical as anybody of the Cowboys trading a first round pick for Amari Cooper. Um, it doesn't make sense on some financial levels and from uh, balancing out your cap and your age and all of those things, but I think it does give you some kind of clarity on the Dak Prescott situation because Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott, for that matter, have been much, much better since they signed Amari Cooper. Ezekiel Elliott ran for 121 yards in this game. It's his third 100-yard game since acquiring uh, Amari Cooper. Amari Cooper himself in this game caught eight passes for 180 yards. The Cowboys now finally have multiple weapons, and you can start to get a better feel for Dak Prescott. Um, this is where it's this is where it's so hard to evaluate quarterbacks. If you put Dak Prescott up in Kansas City right now, I don't think he'd be playing as well as Pat Mahomes, but he might very well be playing like a guy that you want to give a long-term contract to. If you put Pat Mahomes down in Dallas and it's Pat Mahomes' second year and he still hasn't learned a whole lot about the NFL and you had him play without Amari Cooper for, for half the season, does anybody really think – 
Pat Mahomes would be in the conversation for MVP right now? Uh, of course not. And that's just the way it goes with quarterback. That's not breaking news or anything. But it's just so hard to evaluate, okay, just how good is this guy? Is Dak Prescott actually is, has he regressed so much where over the past couple of weeks where he's completing over 70% of his passes, he's looked pretty good. Um, then he still looks limited in some respects. He doesn't look like a truly polished NFL quarterback, but I would be a lot more optimistic about him being there long-term if I was a Cowboys fan. The other side of this two-edged sword is that now – Jason Garrett looks more and more like a guy that will probably keep his job. If they keep playing like this, he's going to keep his job till the end of the year. So if you're a Cowboys fan, you can feel good about Dak Prescott's reemergence, but maybe you're not the biggest Jason Garrett fan. And um, that's, uh, that's just the way life goes sometimes. Speaking of things that happen on Thanksgiving, let me divert for a second before we talk about the rightful MVP, who is, of course, Drew Brees. And if you think otherwise, you're a communist. And not like not like a communist back when people still thought, hey, it's the 1800s and workers get crapped on quite a bit. Let's try something new. No, 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 no. You're a communist looking at everything we've seen that comes with communism, and you still choose to think that somebody other than Drew Brees should be the MVP. But this happened on Thanksgiving. And this is, uh, for listeners of my radio show, you know I've found myself in this situation a few times. I'm, it's on Thanksgiving Day. I find a gas station that's open. And as I'm walking in, there's a young woman, I'm guessing maybe like 20 years old, who's standing outside. And, and she asked something of a guy that was leaving as I was walking in. I didn't really quite catch it. Um, but she didn't, you know, she didn't look sketchy she just looked she looked like a skater chick she had real short hair um was wearing baggy sweats and whatnot uh, but didn't look like she was on drugs or anything and i i go in and i uh, I, I grab my gum i grab my protein bar and what else i grabbed some water and a coffee and uh as i'm on my way out she asks me hey are you driving over near nasa and uh, i wasn't driving right near nasa but I was going somewhere close to NASA where I could have given her a ride. But then immediately, there's all sorts of issues here. One, uh, whenever you pick up any stranger, okay, she might have a gun. She might have a sketchy boyfriend waiting in the bushes wherever I drop her off. I don't know what's going to go on. Uh, but then there's also, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed about this, there's the part where, look, I know the girl that works in the convenience store. And my first thought was, even if I were to go over and talk to this girl and find out what her situation was, because it's Thanksgiving and I'm, I'm getting like my paternal protective instincts gearing up for this, this girl who looks young and uh, vulnerable and down on her luck, obviously, and she's asking all these random dudes that go by if they can give, a ride to, give her a ride to NASA. Uh, but I honestly, like, I don't want it to look like I'm uh, doing something sketchy or sordid with a woman standing outside of a, of a gas station. So I just, uh, I said, no, sorry, and, and I moved along. And then I drove uh, within a quarter mile of NASA, and I felt really, really guilty. I don't know what to do in these situations. And I continue to find myself in these situations, and I'm a sucker for the, the woman that looks defenseless because... I look, I, I've, I've gotten calloused and hardened enough against people asking me for money. I live in a big city, probably happens five times a day at least. And, um, you know, usually the strategy 
or what they tell you is that the best way to do it is to donate to food banks, donate to homeless shelters, because typically your money is going to go to somebody that's uh, just going to turn around and spend it on drugs, whatever. I, I don't know how involved I should get, though, when I all of a sudden feel a protective instinct. And I still feel guilty about this. We're sitting here two days later. I feel guilty about it. I'm going to look for this, this young lady if I ever see her there again. This is my strategy. I will call an Uber have the Uber or the Lyft driver come, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hand the Lyft driver cash. But then there's still that little inkling where like, okay, am I just being a sucker here? Is this just some woman that's, uh, that's, that's looking for something? But I got to stop thinking that way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be less calloused this next New Year's. That'll be my New Year's resolution, to be less calloused and almost uh, – look, if Dak Prescott gives 10% of his salary because he jumps into Salvation Army bins – I'm going to write off a certain amount of money to give to people at gas stations. Oh, oh, because this, I forgot the whole point of the story. Every time somebody comes up to you at a gas station and they say, hey, my car ran out of gas. It's just around the corner over there. I only need $5 for gas. Can you give it to me? Uh, immediately and probably 95% of the time, it's a scam. Except for that when I was in high school, I actually ran into this same situation where I had run away from home my junior year. This is a whole other long story. I had dropped out of high school. I had driven down to Florida, uh, spent a couple weeks down there. And then after I started to realize, oh, wow, being a high school dropout in America is uh, not a fun place to be, especially if you're kind of a, you, you know, you, you'd like to think that you could use your brain in this world. I, I feel like I could get ahead somewhere with my brain. I better go back up and finish high school. So by the time I'd gotten up to Western Pennsylvania and was really just a couple hours away from home, I'd run completely out of money. I was at a gas station and I asked a woman for $5 for gas. And uh, she kind of she kind of looked left and right. She uh, looked me looked me up and down, and then she gave me twenty dollars and said, "Just uh, I can't remember." She said, "Just don't tell my husband; he'd kill me." And uh, you know, immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, "Lady, how how am I ever going to tell your husband?" But of course, I was very 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 grateful. I got home. I graduated high school. I went off to college, and I got to play in the NFL. Well, look, I would have made it home eventually, but that woman you know, lent, lent some money to a stranger trying to get home, man. Yeah. I, uh, that's it from now on. If you see me at a gas station, and you ask me for money. If I have any cash at all, I'm going to give it to you. Okay. So just don't, don't try to victimize me. Don't go asking to, for me to pay off your mortgage or anything like that. But if I have $5 in my wallet, I'm going to give it to you. I'm, I'm tired of being calloused. I'm tired of, being a cold soul. That's it. Happy Thanksgiving and moving on to the rightful MVP of the NFL this year. So far, Drew Brees. You know, each week, I, I think especially over the last, uh, you know, three weeks, um, you've seen just a level of confidence um, and, and growth and maturity. Um, you know, I, I think out of some, you know, young players, really on both sides of the ball, um, you know, stepping into roles, getting significant playing time, um, you know, really having to contribute in a big way. And they've just continued to get better and better. And, and I think there's confidence that's building with that, too. And so you just feel like we're scratching the surface. And I agree with you completely, 100% rightful MVP, Drew Brees. Drew Brees in this game, when he was talking about these younger players, he threw touchdowns to four different undrafted players 
players. Their wide receivers are all banged up to hell. They've got three on IR, including Des Bryant, if you want to count that. But look, he was a potential guy uh, there for the New Orleans Saints. He's on IR. Traquan Smith, the starter, was out today. And he's still tying it all together. He's still doing this in an unfriendly environment. If, if Mahomes or Goff gets this, it's going to be like when a child actor wins an Oscar, where like, oh, hey, she was cute in that piano movie and all, but meanwhile, there's four other women who have dedicated their craft and their life, um, or they've dedicated their lives to their craft. They've sacrificed. Uh, they've, they've suffered. And some little newcomer just comes along because she's cute and wins an Oscar. That's what you're going to get if Pat Mahomes or Jared Goff wins this. The young, cute kid, uh, one with a unique voice, gets the Oscar just because they're the newest flavor of the week. And uh, look, they're they're very good flavors, don't get me wrong. This isn't some crap, one of those, the, hey, it's pickle ice cream flavors. These guys are really good young players, but Drew Brees has never won an MVP. And in a year where it doesn't even have to be a lifetime achievement award, where you kind of wink, wink, and give it to him just to be sure he gets one, he's just tearing it up. Like... I think people have been fond of saying that, okay, there's a few teams at the top that have these ridiculous offenses, the Saints, the Chiefs, and the Rams, and and then everybody else is kind of a Tier 1A or a Tier 2. I I think you have to put the Saints even further above that. Just ridiculously good, and they're doing it with a hodgepodge of different characters. And one thing that Drew Brees also says after that uh, snippet right there was just that the defense, look, the defense has come along. I didn't want to believe that Eli Apple could make a difference, but if you look at the difference between week one of the Saints versus Tampa, who, t- to Tampa's credit, Tampa has churned out touchdowns and yardage on offense. They've just churned out the turnovers like nobody's business, too. They just happen to have two quarterbacks who don't give a single damn. I believe there's three quarterbacks in the league right now that have thrown 11 or more interceptions, and and the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have two of them. So they took it to the Saints early on, but the Saints made improvements on defense, and they're just a much more complete football team right now. I think, and that's the difference between the Saints and those two teams from Monday Night Football, the Rams and the Chiefs, is that they have defense. And is it is it the best defense in the league? No, but they can actually do more than just step up with a few big plays here or there. I think they could consistently, as we saw just a couple weeks ago versus the Rams, I think they can limit those offenses. Um, the matchups are going to be nightmares versus the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs still provide more individual matchup nightmares than the, the Rams do, um, but it's, it's still it's impossible for me at this point to think that anybody other than the Saints are the best team in the league. There was a great moment in this broadcast where Mike Tirico was bragging on Drew Brees about how he never throws interceptions, and he was really, he was gushing about how Drew Brees never throws an interception, and he threw an interception. I'm curious about that interception especially. It looked like the other defender, not the uh, guy that caught the interception, tripped up the intended receiver right before the play. Uh, I couldn't tell from the TV copy. Maybe they just got their feet tangled up, but it looked like there was a healthy amount of contact. It'd be a shame that Drew Brees, who's only thrown two interceptions this year, uh, a guy that's thrown as many interceptions in the entire year as guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick can manage to throw. Like at a, at a, I don't even want to say, obviously, lots of guys can throw two interceptions in one quarter, but it feels at times like... 
Ryan Fitzpatrick could throw four interceptions on three possessions. It's just such the complete opposite of Drew Brees. So I demand restitution for Drew Brees. I want Elias to go back and strike that interception from the record. One guy who is very specifically not in the conversation for MVP this year is Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers weighed in on his performance so far and uh, the rest of the team as well. We've been trying to move Devontae around a little bit and put him in some of those spots, but uh, it, it's all about execution and the situational offense. And we just, you know, we have been great in that throughout games and definitely have been great in that in the fourth quarter. You know, we got to get touchdowns to finish out games. We got to convert third downs to keep the ball and not give it back to the offense. Uh, with the injuries we have on defense, we got to play. I got to play. We got to play better on offense. And obviously, a lot of the talk around the Green Bay Packers isn't as much on Aaron Rodgers right this moment as it is on Mike McCarthy. And uh, these are one of those complex situations where a, a few things can be to blame. Aaron Rodgers can be to blame where you look at the last game where it looked like he had opportunities and open receivers where he he chose to make the difficult throw instead of the gimme throw. Uh, he wasn't checking down when he very easily could have checked down. But then you also have to look at the personnel um, and look at how they've had to shuffle things around. Look at how they've had to use young receivers a lot of the time. And a lot of times just because if a guy's not where he routinely is supposed to be, uh, if you can't depend on him, then quarterbacks have a tendency to become blind to those guys. So you can blame part of it on personnel and a lack of familiarity with that personnel but then so much of the criticism over the last year has rested on Mike McCarthy we've talked about that uh, but Bucky Brooks had a column on NFL.com where he had a quote from a former NFL defensive coordinator he said this he's old school talking about Mike McCarthy he runs the purest version of the West Coast offense in the league and hasn't updated his concepts or route combinations. He can get away with it when he has superior personnel, but he doesn't do anything to help his guys win on the outside. Plus, he doesn't run it enough to take some of the pressure off of number 12, uh, number 12 being Aaron Rodgers. I, I think this is valid, um, and I think sometimes it's overstated just how simple Mike McCarthy's offense is. But a couple things. One, if you talk about the pre-stat motion, the shift, of personnel groups, all of those things, those are those are vital and essential in a lot of situations these days. It's hard to do it well when you don't have experienced personnel on the field. So that's partly a personnel issue, but also partly a Mike McCarthy issue. I don't know if he's never really ever really shown an extreme willingness to do all that stuff. Maybe if they had done it at one point, uh, I mean, now they had to scale back or pare it down because of youthful personnel or because of injuries, then I, I would get that. Um, but I, I think that's a valid complaint. A lot of times with West Coast offenses, if you have threats at multiple levels of the offense, then it doesn't matter if the defensive back know what's coming or know which route combinations are coming. They still have to make a decision. A safety has to make a decision whether to take the intermediate or the deep route and try to figure out where the quarterback's going with the ball. That's the beauty of a West Coast offense when well executed. But part of that is also having a running game, developing a running game. Um, and that's historically not something that Mike McCarthy has always looked really committed to. So you never feel like there's an integrated plan at play here. You never feel like they're building off of something. It's one part Mike McCarthy's offense, two parts Aaron Rodgers' improvisational brilliance. And then the question becomes, all right, well, but how much credit do you give a head coach who consistently wins as many games as they do? <sighs> 
I don't know. I don't, Aaron Rodgers is that good of a quarterback most of the time, um, you know, and he's not a perfect quarterback by any stretch of the imagination, that I think that you have to credit Aaron Rodgers more for the wins than Mike McCarthy. I don't think people are really having the argument, are they, about the is it the quarterback or the coach the way they do in New England all the time? And if at that point, if you can't have a conversation, like I can have an argument about, hey, just how good is Jared Goff versus just how good is Sean McVay? Hey, just how good is Pat Mahomes versus just how good is Andy Reid? Oh, my gosh. Brady or Belichick, that's a whole that's, – that's Fox Sports like three weeks in February – show planning right there is just go back to that tired old argument and then we'll argue about LeBron versus MJ. I don't think anybody has that argument with Mike McCarthy versus Aaron Rodgers. Is there any question there that there are probably 10, 15 coordinators or head coaches that you feel like Aaron Rodgers would have had the same level of success with? I don't think so. Like I, I think that people pretty much accept it. So with Aaron Rodgers being 34 years old, it's time to move on. It's time to give him another shot, one last gasp at winning another Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, in my humble opinion. But anyway, we can't talk about Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady or Jared Goff or Pat Mahomes with that matter with that for that matter without also discussing Josh Allen and Blake Bortles who showdown in an AFC divisional round rematch from last season which has all the promises of being exactly the low scoring drudgery uh please let me leap off this building. Don't hold me back. Let me jump in front of that train affair that it was last year. Except that you've got this added intrigue of Josh Allen coming back from injury and Jalen Ramsey, the very vocal, very outspoken, the brash cornerback from the Jacksonville Jaguars, who in the offseason was very critical of Josh Allen. I believe he called him trash. Don't quote me on that directly. Uh, them in this rematch and Jalen Ramsey, whose play hadn't been quite as stellar as it was last year, uh, but who rebounded quickly and bigly, bigly. Oh, I, just, I said it. I said that word. It's in the lexicon now. Anyway, in a big league fashion last week until the very end where you might say maybe he should have been in better uh, better support position on uh, cover zero, whatever. Jalen Ramsey made some big plays last week, uh, looking more like himself, and now this embattled Jacksonville squad places the Buffalo Bill, plays the Buffalo Bills, whose defense has, has shown signs of life and some potential impressiveness here. They're actually the number one overall passing defense. That comes with an asterisk that, look, okay, how many leads have they played conservatively to protect? But still, like how, how often have teams really felt the need to pass versus the Buffalo Bills? Regardless, they've got some stout playmakers over there, so I don't anticipate a very high-scoring game here. Josh Allen, for his part, took the high road, calling Jalen Ramsey, quote, maybe one of the best corners in the game. Uh, it doesn't sit with me. I honestly don't remember what he said. I could care less. It's more about what my teammates feel about me, unquote. I have some reservations about what Josh Allen's teammates might feel about him after this game. He's still very much a rookie quarterback. He's still very much what his scouting report was, which was a huge inaccurate arm, but he's also playing behind a really bad offensive line. So versus that Jacksonville Jaguars defense, which looked incredible for uh, almost the entire Jacks, uh, excuse me, Pittsburgh game last week, but then faltered at the end. Uh, I don't expect Josh Allen to pull off what Ben Roethlisberger was able to do. So there, they said, they said, Seth, you can't 
talk about Sunday's games and lead off with the Jaguars playing the Bills. But I said, no, you've got grudgery here. You've got Jalen Ramsey versus Josh Allen. You've got Doug Marone going back to Buffalo, where let's remember Doug Marone stepped away from his job in Buffalo, opted out. Because he thought that the next great head coaching job was just going to roll out in front of him like like all the virgins that you're supposed to get when you die um, in a holy war. That That's what Doug Marone thought he was going to get 99 virgins in the form of a job in New York or something like that. He did eventually end up in Jacksonville, found himself there, found himself in the AFC Championship, uh, but it's not looking as pretty right now. Frankly, I really don't like previewing games. Um, it, it just ends up feeling boring and stale. I predict games because I have to, but I only do that when I have to, and I don't have to do anything I don't want to do on this podcast. So I uh, am going to try to do a Monday show where I react to select Sunday games, the interesting Sunday games, and then also this week especially, because I am a former Houston Texan, I'm going to preview the Monday night football game here with the Titans visiting the Houston Texans. whole lot of intrigue in this one, including Marcus Mariota coming back from a stinger, but I'll get into that tomorrow. Uh, Right now, got to get to these Right now, I want to answer a couple of questions that you guys sent me last week. Two pressing questions. One, uh, and I had no clue. Sean Pendergast told me this when we were recording this week. Clint Shane had asked me, what bear is the best bear? I had no idea that was from a scene on The Office because uh, to many people's shock, I'm not a huge fan of The Office. I could never really get into it. Sean Sean encouraged me to skip season one and start right in on season two. He showed me a couple of clips from seasons two through whenever, and I'm, I'm actually newly intrigued. So now I just got to talk the wife into booting off some of our Netflix playlists back a little further. After we work our way through Narcos this season, I'm going to get me some office action. Starting right in uh, season two, I'm not going to try to catch up on season one or anything. Maybe I'll look at the Wikipedia slash Notes versions of what happened with Jim and that, that uh, secretary that he likes or whatever in season one. But uh, what bear is the best bear? And it turns out that just like Jim from The Office stated as he was imitating Dwight, I think, is Dwight the guy with the glasses? The black bear is the best bear. If I'm going to rank North American bears, and I decided to limit this to North American bears to keep it simple for you, the listener, if I was including worldwide bears, I might have had to include the Malaysian sun bear from Southeast Asia. It's also known as the honey bear because they have a voracious appetite for honey. Uh, but they're they're called the sun bear, I think, because they have this collar of yellow fur around their necks. It, frankly, it looks fake. If you watch basketball, you look at Clint Capella's big splotch of yellow hair where it's obviously dyed. This Malaysian sun bear actually looks like it's putting on airs or something with this big jungle king collar around its neck. Uh, But he's got this really, really wide neck. The Malaysian sun bear is a tiny bear, but he's got this wide Takeo Spikes neck. It's like a cobra honey badger looking creature, and they've got these freakishly long claws They're half the size of a black bear, actually, uh, which is the smallest of the three North American bears that we'll talk about. Half the size of a black bear, very shy, but incredibly aggressive when surprised. So it's going to attack humans 
in what they perceive as self-defense, but it's not going to be out on the prowl looking for humans. But this, in a lot of ways, does almost sound like, uh, well, it's not the honey badger is pretty aggressive as a creature. It's not a honey badger unless when it decides that it's about to go down, it gets honey badger-like in its ferocity. Uh, Quote, because they do not hibernate, oh, and this is what would have put it really high up there, because they do not hibernate, Sun bears are capable of reproducing year-round and have been observed breeding at various times of the year. Down, down to copulate is what they say about the honey bear, and that is enough for me to vault it up into the international rankings. As far as the, the North American bears, I know a lot of people are going to say the grizzly bear. Look, I, I lumped the grizzly bear in with a brown bear. To me, it's all about how many times have they killed humans. If I'm going to be scared of a bear, I'm going to be scared of a bear that might actually do me harm because that's just one of the criteria in my little personal list. I'll never tell you all the criteria, but black bears, as I teased this the other day, have killed 61 people since 1900. That's on bear.org. I don't know when that, uh, maybe they've killed more people since whenever that was published, but the majority of the American black bears diet is vegetation. This includes young shoots from trees, bushes, honeybees, yellow jackets, all this other. I, I th- For some reason, they include bees, yellow jackets, ants, and ant larvae in vegetation. But you know what I mean. Or you know, I guess so it's what bear.org is just saying, look, it's not, uh, it's not killing mammals out there. And they will eat salmon. But for the most part, it's males out attacking humans in a predatory fashion. A lot of people thought that it was mothers protecting their young. But it's actually a predatory fashion that these black bears are going af- after people. Now, part of it is that I think more black bears are around people than polar bears or brown bears, also which are uh, grizzly bears are included in the brown bears, remember. So just keep that in mind. Um, brown bears, I would have given the nod just because it seems when they do attack a person – that's it for you uh, because they're just so damn big. Except then I saw this graphic of polar bears standing on their on their hind legs. A polar bear standing on its hind legs can be 10 foot tall. So you're sitting there looking at an NBA center, but who's got the massiveness of a bear. That's ridiculous. But this is what I don't like about polar bears is that so often they look yellow and it looks to always to me like they're covered in urine or anything or something. Turns out that's not the case. They're not covered in urine when they're colored yellow, and they can actually sometimes look green or other colors. It depends on what they eat because they'll absorb some of those things that they eat uh, externally. They'll actually absorb, like they eat seals. So it's not seals that are making them yellow from the inside or anything. It's that they have hollow fur which I believe helps provide extra insulation from the cold, but that hollow fur will trap the juices of whatever they're eating. So if they spend a lot of time um, while rolling around on ferns or what have you, then they, they absorb a lot of the green. But when they're eating seals, the seal oil is yellow. That seal, seal oil gets trapped in their fur, and that's why they have a yellow appearance because they're actually yellow. I also I, I thought maybe it was the way the angle of the sun above the Arctic Circle hit him or something like, no, that stank bear is just yellow, but it is massive. So I had a hard time figuring out whether to bump them down because of the urine look or up because of the size. I stuck with the size and the scariness of it. Also because one of my friends was a uh, head uncle who was once attacked by a an adolescent polar bear while he was hunting and he killed it with his knife. This guy 
had scars all up and down his legs. Like he was as close to Indiana Jones as I've ever met in a human being, especially when you're 12 years old and this guy's telling this story. So I'll uh, just to help that guy's story remain as cool as it is, I'll bump him up to second. I'm going to put Bears up there in first place. The Malaysian Sun Bear, again, uh, the fact that it can copulate year-round, much respect for that. You're not wasting half your life away hibernating like these kids are with their video games where they're not having sex either. The Malaysian bear is out there living life, going to discotheques, copulating, meeting up, uh, making love. Some of the miscellaneous divisions, which I just frankly, uh, it was too overwhelming. There's too many bears out there, and I didn't want to play favorites. But special mention to the bear Jew from the movie Inglorious Bastards, which uh, unless you watch the plot of the movie out of context, that might sound bad in some way, uh, like an insult or anything. Watch Inglorious Bastards. You're going to see being the bear Jew is no, no insult at all. Uh, gummy bears, frankly, uh, I love them. I rediscovered them this Halloween. Care bears were very, very low on the list. If I could put them as close to last as possible, I would put them down there. Pooh Bear, I think Pooh Bear, Pooh Bear is a little too refined for me, maybe a little too wimpy, but uh, at the same time, my daughter had a Pooh Bear. That was her favorite animal growing up, and I've got a special place in my heart for Pooh Bear. Uh, Fozzie Bear. Fozzie Bear was definitely in the top third underrated character from uh, from Sesame. Was that Sesame Street? That's how underrated he is. I can't even remember if he was on uh, Sesame Street. Paddington Bear also at the bottom of the list. He's too English. He's too annoying. He used the word marmalade instead of jelly. Again, oh, they're going to say, hey, that's that's an English thing. Well, yeah, there you go. All right, we don't need no Euro beers bears over here. Uh, let's see. Fozzie Bear, I already listed him. I, I, I put him down there twice because I liked him so much. Uh, the Country Bears. The Country Bears, uh, I put up on the list only because they've managed to sustain their own building at Disney World for decade after decade after decade with some lame animatronic act that only gets visitors because it's air-conditioned, but they're smart enough to recognize that. They're like the convenience store chain Bucky's down here in Texas, they know that people are going to come to them because their restrooms are gleaming and sparkling. They bank on it. And they do a lot of other cool things too. I don't mean to, I don't mean to lump Bucky's, which is a local institution into the same mediocrity as the country bears, but I'll credit the country bears with figuring that part of it out. One more question here, which is actually a football related question. And this one comes from Darren Champs on Twitter, at Darren Champs. Did you find training for college ball different or the same when training for pro ball? For pro ball, excuse me. Um, I did, and in a lot of ways, it just comes down to simple injury prevention and physical maturity. This is going to vary a lot from coach to coach and place to place, but I think for the most part, it's pretty consistent across the board that when you get to the NFL, there's much less emphasis on you know, getting your squat as strong as humanly possible, getting your bench press as strong as humanly possible. Um, some coaches are going to want you to get a lot stronger, and they're going to they're gonna go for that. But it's always done well conscious of the fact that you got to be careful with injuries and that also most guys are already pretty strong. You know, let's say if you're a defensive lineman and you've got 20 different physical traits that 
make you a good player, whether, and, and I'll include technique in that. So the technique of your position, um, your stance, your agility, all those things, you've got to work on all 20 of those things. And then uh, your ability to recuperate, your ability to stay healthy, let's call that one of those 20 traits, your durability. So you've got to work on all of those things. Brute strength uh, is going to help you and you can get stronger over time. Guys do. You keep getting stronger just because as long as you're staying healthy, you physically keep getting stronger up until you're 30. It's a matter of can you stay on the field um, after all the injuries you've sustained in the NFL. So I, I think that, it, to put it really simply, college strength training is a lot more meat-headed. Uh, NFL strength training is a lot more focused on injury prevention, um, what's sustainable throughout a long, long season. And, and it's an individual thing, too. There's some guys that get to the NFL and they need to put on weight. There are other guys that need to lose weight. Um, and then there are time limitations, too, where in college – they're very strict about how much time you can spend with the coaches. So often the the strength coaches have to be extremely efficient. Like and they've gotta they've gotta train more kids too. So you've got to train a hundred players in a limited amount of time. The priority is really on moving guys around in groups, getting things done with a lot of intensity very quickly. The NFL, you can stretch it out a little bit more and it gets more individualized. Um, and then maybe guys these days, especially, they focus a lot more on their core uh, proprioception, which is your ability to kind of judge where your body is, what your body position is. A lot of the more uh, – the the – the more refined parts of physical training and guys go into their, their own personal trainers in the off season. I'm of the personal belief that a lot of guys are overtrained now in the NFL just because, uh, you know, and, and it's a shame. It's ironic because in a lot of ways they take it more seriously than guys did in previous generations, but they're at the point now where their off season programs are so intense. Um, and even if they're not squatting extremely heavy weights all the time. They're just putting a lot of stress on their joints all the time. And you walk that delicate line between, all right, look, I'm going to train as hard as I can and be as finely tuned and explosive and powerful as I can. But what good is it if I'm on IR? Uh, but that would be, uh, so if I had to, if I had to boil it down to one simple concept, college training, more meatheadish than NFL training. Thanks a lot, everybody. Uh, I'll have a couple more guests for you this week, including Michael Lombardi, as we always do on Thursday, Sean Pendergast on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. We'll figure it out. We'll keep you guessing. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your weekend and your Monday, and hopefully the, the Texans, I say pull one out. I shouldn't say pull one out. The Texans should beat the Tennessee Titans on Monday night. Have a great one.